We interrupt this message for a brief advertisement. Uh, the, for those who have not heard, Marietta is going to have their conference, or I'm sorry, Buena Park's going to have their conference in Marietta again. Josh ha tells me he has to work, so I still haven't heard why his wife can't go yet. But uh, if, you're, if you're interested to know more about it, there is no charge. It will start on a Tuesday night at around 5, with the first meeting around 7, and we'll run through Thursday around 4. So it's two nights. They feed you five meals. We'll house you for those two nights, and it is no charge. So if you're interested in going, let me know, and I will send you the invite and the link to how to register for that conference. Oh, dates are important. It is, Christmas is on the 25th. So it starts on the 27th. It's between Christmas and New Year's on that week. So it would start on the 27th. I know we've enjoyed ourselves very much at that conference, and we would encourage you to consider attending. There's also hot springs that you can soak in overnight and things like that. So it's just not sitting and listening to ministry and, and singing and fellowship. All right. Thank you, Rick, for giving me uh, this amount of time. This morning I was at Buena Park and had 25 minutes, and it's hard for me to say much in 25 minutes. And when I feel pressed for time, I start rushing, and that's never a good thing. I was in Miami, Florida three years ago, and I was with a person who um, has written a number of books. He's a rather well-known author. And we were commuting back and forth to the conference we were attending. And he asked me a question. And I gave him, an, I believe, an honest answer. And the question was this, is what's, what's the greatest obstacle you face in your ministry? And he told me that I was the first person ever told him that that was the greatest obstacle for them in their ministry. And, and he'd talked to a number of people. And I'm going to tell you what it is, and then when I tell you, you'll probably think, what in the world would that be an obstacle for him? But it's pride. It's pride. And anytime you stand in front, pride is something you have to deal with. And, and you, you speak. The last two years, I spoke at the Marietta Conference, and there's a different speaker for each session. The gentleman who organizes it has asked me to be the last speaker. And we check out of our rooms after lunch, and then we have two more sessions after the lunch. And once you're checked out of a room, especially if you have a small children, you usually leave the conference or you leave. And so one of the ways you have to fight pride is you say, well, why am I last? I, I have something to say. I'd like to address the whole group, why am I last? And maybe there's just a few people left at that time. Pride, you battle pride then, and you have to take that, and when you say, why am I last? And you have to put that behind you and say, that's Satan, bringing that into your heart. When you walk down off the platform and someone says, oh, you really blessed me, I'll tell you, you have to battle pride. Because pride would say, good job. Pride would almost twist your arm around trying to pat yourself on the back. 
So pride is always a challenge. Pride, when you study and you consider and you meditate on the word of God and you have some type of a knowledge, knowledge we're told puffs up. And so pride is a constant battle because the more you learn, the more you start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. So I'd like to, I'd like to talk about pride tonight if I could. And so first thing, a few things about pride. And the first thing that we need to understand is God hates it. So Proverbs 6 and 16 says this, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. A proud look is the very first thing listed. In fact, I would suggest to you that the other things listed often are a result of the sin of pride. Proverbs 16, 5 says this, Everyone that is proud in the heart is an abomination of the Lord, though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. So think about it. Pride's an abomination to the Lord. A proud look does not refer to how a person looks to others, but how a person himself sees or views himself and how he sees everyone else. Pride's a constant battle in my life. We live in a day and age where it's very natural, and it probably has been this way since the beginning, to compare ourselves to others. And it's usually to compare ourselves to find something that we're better in some area than someone else. And one of the problems when we look at other people with pride is we're really viewing them as being worth less than we are. And so it's really no wonder that God hates pride. And we're really talking about a righteous hatred. He, he, he has disgust and revulsion towards pride. And really, if the beginning of wisdom is to see things how God sees them, then when pride rises up in my heart, do I see it like God sees it? Do I hate it like God sees it? Do I see it as an utter abomination like God sees it? New Testament says much the same thing. James 4, 6, a fairly familiar verse to some of us, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Pride or arrogance is something that provokes God to wrath. Think about that for a moment. It irritates him, it agitates him, it displeases him beyond anything I can describe. And yet, we run across an awful lot of pride in our own lives and we run an awful, across an awful lot of people who are arrogant. 
But pride leads to all sorts of sins, as I mentioned earlier. So Proverbs 16 and 18 says this. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it be of an humble spirit with, low, with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. Proverbs 21.4, A high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Proverbs 29 says, A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. Pride comes before all those decisions and ideas that lead to a person's destruction. And why is that? The Bible would tell us that pride is a light of the eye by which we see all of life. And so pride affects our vision. You know, you can go to an optometrist, you can sit in a chair and he says, is it A or is it B? And he keeps flipping things and, you know, he can actually improve your vision. But I had cataracts and they flip those things and it doesn't do anything for your vision. Because the only thing that will help them is radical surgery. And I would suggest to you that pride has the same effect that you can't sort of improve your vision if we have a pride issue. It's gonna take radical surgery to address pride in your heart. Matthew 7 would teach us that, right? Because in Matthew 7, he says that we need to remove the beam from our own eye before we can remove the splinter from our brother's eye. Because why? Because when we have pride, we can't see clearly enough to remove it and to help the other brothers. Some of the ways pride affects our vision. Envy. Envy is a, is a resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, an advantage that we are convinced ought rightly to be ours. So how come that brother gets to speak to the whole auditorium and I don't get to speak when everyone's there? And why does that, why do we have that reaction? Because we think we're better than that speaker. Or we think our, our message is more valuable than that speaker. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And so we're envious of a brother. We're envious of a brother's gifts. We're envious of a brother's talents. And if you look like me, you can be envious of a brother's looks. Bitterness. Bitterness is that sour feeling on our souls when someone has offended us or defrauded us or failed to deliver on what we thought they owed us. But why should that provoke bitterness? Because it, it makes us appear to be less in the eyes of others. It reprises us of something we think we deserve. This is pride at work. This is, I struggled with this in my marriage. If someone disrespected me, I wanted my wife particularly to stand up for me. I don't know if you've been in those situations, but you want to be defended if you think you're unjustly charged. If you think someone makes a comment to you that's not right, then you want someone to come to your defense. 
And why is that? Because of pride. Because you're worried about what people are thinking about you. You're worried about your reputation. You're worried about who you are. Strife. Strife flows out of a competitive desire to be number one. It's a desire for power and authority and praise. You know, if you're in negotiations, if you're, if you're at a men's meeting, if you're working with someone else at a camp meeting, you're doing something else, and, and someone just needs to have their way, and needs to have their way so forcefully that finally you just back away and let them have your way because you're just not willing to make a fight over that issue. You know, sometimes we make the comment, you know, be careful the mountain you choose to die on. And so you go, well, that's not my mountain to die on today, so you can just have your way, brother, because I'm not going to fight you over it. But what causes that brother to make that issue so important that he just won't compromise, he won't say no, he won't resist that at all? It's pride. Deceit. Why do we lie and mislead others and speak in fuzzy rather than forthright terms? It's almost always because we want someone to think better of us. Had to stop on the way to Buena Park. I forgot to get gas this week. We didn't have meeting on Wednesday night, and I was going to get gas on Wednesday night. And we had to pull over and stop, and it was like, how embarrassing is that, that you have to stop and get a couple dollars worth of gas just to make it to where you're going and, be, and still be on time. You can make excuses. You can shade the truth. You can say all sorts of things. If you're late to a meeting, why are you late? Oh, there was traffic. Well, there might have been traffic, or you might have left 10 minutes late. But you don't want anybody to think you left 10 minutes late, so you use what we call deceit to make yourself look better. And it's pride at work. Hypocrisy. Again, we are motivated to pretend to be something we aren't because we, we, we fear being seen and known for what we really are. Sometimes we can set a culture in our assemblies particularly that in order to be spiritual, you can't have any failure in your life. You can't have any struggles. You can't have any real issues or real problems because if you really had a real problem, someone might think you weren't spiritual and therefore there's no accountability and there's no sharing because none of us want to admit that we have real problems or we're really struggling, or there's areas of our lives that we're really having a hard time dealing with. It could be a death, it could be a sickness, it could be an illness, but we come and we say, all is well. All is well. In fact, we almost afraid to even give out a prayer request. I'm struggling right now, can you pray for me? Because someone might think we're less spiritual than we actually are, and so hypocrisy comes from pride because we want to put on a front or a face that really isn't there. And that's not really who we are, but that's who we want people to think we are. And then slander, the Lord hates slander, and slander almost comes from the sin of pride. And we speak badly of others because we need to put them down. 
so that we feel better about ourselves. We need to misrepresent who they are and what they do, sometimes because we want revenge because we think they said something about us. Pride is simply quite, it's quite simply the ugly part of your heart that causes you to be more concerned about yourself and your own reputation than you are about Christ and his reputation. I will tell you that one of the verses that really spoke to me, and it was after a camp meeting, and it was a late camp meeting. It was probably 1 o'clock when I was on the road, and, you know, it's a good two-hour drive home from Claremont to my house, and we're on the road late at night, and I'm banging my head up against the windshield trying to stay awake and also thinking, and, you know, I thought I'd made a very logical plea on an, on an issue, and I thought everybody would sort of agreed to it, and then the next time we met, they'd all, you know, they'd reverse their decisions and decide that my logical plea, which they'd all agreed at the last minute, was now out the door. So I made the same logical plea, and it didn't, it fell on deaf ears, and I'm driving home, and I'm going, man, what's happening? And the Lord said to me, he said, you know, if you made a logical plea and they all agreed with it, who'd get the glory? But I change hearts. And it might take six months, it might take a year, it might take two years, but when it finally happens, guess who gets the glory? He gets the glory. My character has come under attack more than once, and there's people in this room who probably are very well aware of that, and that used to bother me a great deal. And the Lord said to me, he said, you know what, that's pride. You're worrying about your character is simply pride. And the verse that came to me is a verse that's very precious, but it says that my name might have the preeminence, that his name might have the preeminence. And I realized that I was more worried about my name than I was about his name. And when I became more worried about my name than I was about his name, I had to identify that as pride and see pride. Pride is the reason why I won't say I'm sorry and please forgive me when I'm wrong. Even when I know I'm wrong, I just struggle saying, please forgive me, I'm wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Pride is the reason some men push their children beyond what is healthy, hoping they will succeed and show themselves better and more successful than the children of their neighbors. Hopefully I haven't done that to my children, but I've dealt with children. I've dealt with counseling sessions where the children never feel accepted by their father because they never lived up to a standard that their father set. The father never reached that standard, but he sets a standard for their children, which is higher than, and they feel defeated. And I've had 50-year-old men crying because they've never felt accepted by their father. And I've had 50-year-old men crying because their father has died and their last opportunity to be accepted by their father has now gone out the window. Men who were successful in their endeavor, but it wasn't what their father wanted. It could have been their father wanted to be a doctor, their father wanted them to get a PhD, whatever it was. They were successful in life, but they did never achieve the favor of their father, and that's pride. The father's living out his life through the child, and his very existence and his self-worth is based upon the child's achievement. 
Pride is the reason I lack patience in dealing with others. And believe me, that's an area of pride that the Lord has to deal with me on a regular basis. Patience. Pride is the reason why some will not witness for Christ. Pride is the reason why I reject and rebuke. I reject re, re, correction and, and someone rebuking me. You had someone come up when you're done speaking a message and they go, you forgot to mention this. And total honesty and transparency here. My first reaction is always the same. Well, if I'd had an hour and a half, I would have got to that point. But you know what that response is driven from? Pride, because I don't want to accept correction. And how gracious is it to say, thank you, brother, that's a good point. I'll try to work it in if I do this message again. That's pride. That's pride. Pride is the reason why we need to be right and affirmed in our thoughts. Just not enough to say, I, I see your point of view, brother. I have to say, not only do I see your point of view, brother, but you've now convinced me to agree with your point of view. That's pride. That's pride. Pride is when our doctrinal position is right and only a fool would have any other position. Pride is what causes us to be independent and to reject accountability. I will tell you, as I travel around assemblies, I, we're not very good at accountability. There's a lot of churches out there that are doing a great job by having men accountability meetings and hold, and men who are in accountability relationship. I think our pride causes us not to want to be in those positions because we're afraid someone might think less of us than we want them to. Pride is the reason why we are defensive and so quick to defend ourselves. You want to measure your pride, measure how fast you are to defend yourself when you think you're wrong. Defensive people are very, very difficult. When I'm in a counseling situation between a husband and wife, if one's defensive, I will tell you, it's the hardest wall to break down. And the reason they're so defensive is because of pride. Pride deceives, and I often believe that my motives are pure when they are really being driven or affected by my pride. I'm honoring the name of the Lord. I'm taking this position because that's what he would want. Proverbs 26, 12 says this, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit, there is more hope for a fool than for him. The proud heart is impervious to rebuke and insensitive to conviction. That's why he's more hopeless than a fool. And that's bad news. So we have a few minutes to talk about how do we combat pride in our hearts? 
we were talking this morning and praying, and, and one of the things we thought about was the verse that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart, and see if there be any wicked way in me. I believe the first thing in attacking or understanding pride is understanding the grace of God. Understanding the grace of God. You might ask me why I say that. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another, and what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if thou hadst not received it. When we know that everything we have is a gift from God, that we know and experience and enjoy is an expression of God's goodness towards us. To know that everything we have, including our salvation, is a gift. That's the first step in dethroning pride. I don't have anything that God hasn't given me. And part of the problem with pride is we start taking credit for what God has done. It's if he's given me a gift to communicate his word, anytime I accept credit for that, it's pride. It's simply and totally pride. Because it's nothing in me. As Paul says, there's nothing good in us at all. Secondly, is to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Romans 12 and 3 says this, For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Every time the scriptures mention spiritual gifts, it addresses the issue of pride. Think about that. Every time... The scriptures address spiritual gifts. It addresses the issue of pride. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. We'll look at those. Why? I know when I was a kid and the neighbor rolled out with this new shiny bike and I didn't get much for Christmas because we didn't have much money if we celebrated Christmas at all which we often did not when I was a youngster. He usually did it with a lot of pride. And I usually watch with a lot of pride, but my pride was more in the envious area than with pride that I had something new and shiny to show off. So when God has given you a special talent or God has given you a special gift, he reminds us again and again it's from him, it's to be used for him, and it's not us. And we can't pat ourselves on the back. We can't take credit for it. We can't say, I, 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 I. First Corinthians 12 then says this, 14, verse 14. 
very fairly familiar passage. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not of the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it pleased him. Pride tells us if you're not like me, see things like me, understand things like me, you are not what I am worth. Your views and opinions do not carry the weight or worth of my views and opinions. Or, pride tells us this. says, I don't think like the brother or so-and-so, and I have no reason to give my opinion or my views on a subject. There I'm not, therefore, I'm not worthy and must remain silent. I don't have that brother's gift to minister the word. Therefore, I'm not worthy. That's pride, too. That's pride, too. Because God has a purpose and has placed you in the body to do something important. And just because you're not like the other brother doesn't mean he doesn't have a role and a task for you to do. And it will be pride that will keep you from doing the task and the role that you assign. Sometimes we joke and say that I'd like to be a servant of God. I'm willing to be a doorkeeper in the house of the king. What if he asked you to clean the toilets? Would you be happy doing that? If you have to think about that, just let me tell you, you're now recognizing pride in your life. Ephesians 4, verse 2 and 3 says this, With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4 is the next great chapter on gifts. With all lowliness and meekness, Meekness is the opposite of pride. Meekness means that when we realize there is a higher power that is control and we are not in control. Notice what it says. Long-suffering and forbearing are the opposite of pride and are the result of lowliness and meekness. It is hard to be long-suffering when you are full of pride. Pride would cause us to be the ones that we think we're the only ones standing in the gap. You ever been there? Said, if I don't put a stop to this. Someone quoted it again to me recently, and and I have to admit that I don't think it's a terribly biblical quote. All it takes for evil to triumph is good men to do nothing. Because God has good men doing something. But we use that to justify doing it in our own efforts, in our own way, and in our own will. Pride makes us think that if we don't correct this wrong, disaster will result. I will tell you, some of the most ungracious things I ever did was because pride caused me to think that this wrong needed to be corrected immediately or there would be disaster as a result. 
And I severely hurt people because of my need to correct that situation. And usually it was because I thought I might look bad if the thing didn't go the way it should go. I'll tell you, it's pride. It's pride. If we don't act immediately, tragedy will result. Now, can't tell you that I battled and won all these battles, but I will tell you that I now recognize other people who have an issue with pride and they think something needs to be immediately fixed and they're ungracious in the way they go about fixing it. Pride causes us to think that the world depends on us and our ability. Maybe if it's not the world, maybe it's the assembly or maybe it's the family. Pride causes patience to go out the window. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says this, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. And here's where our mind deceives us. We think we are looking at out for, the, for things of others. And we think we're protecting Christ's name and doing things for his sake. And that it's his honor that we're striving over. And that we're not doing anything from pride or selfish motives, but we're acting on behalf of the glory of God. I will tell you one way that this is Grab me is to not think more highly. I'll read it again. Let nothing be done in vain or glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than yourselves. You know, I always thought I esteemed other people better than myself. I was wrong because I was blinded by pride. But I'll tell you what the Lord really smacked me across the forehead, probably with a two-by-four because I was hard of hearing and hard of learning. My problem was not to consider their ideas better than mine. And someone would come up with an idea and I'd poo-poo it and go, no, no, that'll never work. I know. We've tried that. We've done this. We've done that. I know better than you do in that area. You know, when elders get together, it's often one elder who, if he has a pride issue, will poo-poo any ideas, any new things in an assembly anything thinking outside the box because I've tried that, that won't work, no, no. And it was when the Lord spoke to me that I need to consider others' ideas better than mine. It's amazing how much I learned and how well things ran because people, believe it or not, I'll let you know a little side secret here, other people have better ideas than I do. And some of the greatest successes I've ever had is by letting other people and their ideas flourish and encouraging them. One way to check our motives is look at the results of our actions. If our actions result in the works of the flesh, we're not acting in meekness and long-suffering. Galatians 5.15 says this, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. 
and we think we have all the answers, when we think everything is an immediate thing, everything has to be stopped, everything has to be corrected on the spot, there is no grace, there is no time. It's, that's a direct result of pride at work in our hearts. And people are getting hurt right and left, and people are discouraged, and people are struggling, and we can't figure out why. Because the meetings start on time, the music's right, everybody, everybody seems to be in place, everything's going well. Why are people discouraged? Just in case you forgot, here's the works of the flesh from Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such like of which I tell you before, as I've to as also told you in times past, they which do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Our pride causes us to act in the flesh. And the result of our acting in the flesh is the works of the flesh. So how do we make sure we're acting in the spirit and not in the pride of the flesh? Philippians 2. Why don't we turn to Philippians 2. A fairly familiar passage and you know every time there's strife in the assembly someone will open Philippians 2 and read it and I've had it read to me when there's strife in the assembly and I, to tell you the truth I, I just didn't grasp it my pride made me so blind I just couldn't understand what Paul was trying to say verse 5 let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus how do we look not everything on every man on, on, on his own things, but every man also on the things of others? How do we do that? How do we battle pride in our lives? It's, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You know, if you go through this passage, you turn to Genesis and you see Adam's sin and you compare them. There's seven points here. There's seven things that Adam did and each one that he failed in, the Lord Jesus lived up to. Adam ate of the tree of knowledge because what? Because he wanted to be like God. He grasped at being like God. And yet here we have the example of the Lord Jesus. He didn't grasp at anything. Pride makes us grasp for things. If only we had this, people would think more highly of us. If only we had that. I mean, you don't have to watch American television very long, and you know that if you drive a nice car, people think more highly of you. And yet some people fall for that, and they run out and, drive and buy a new car so that they'll be more impressive, a bigger house. Whatever it is, but that's grasping at things. But here... He did not grasp, and he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, Notice, but made himself of no reputation. I will tell you that I didn't have a reputation, but it worried me a lot, and that's pride. 
none of us really like our reputation to be drugged through the mud, but there's no one whose reputation was drugged more through the mud than Jesus Christ. He's our example. Do you worry about your reputation? And took upon himself the form of a servant. I'll tell you one of the lessons the Lord has taught me the last couple of years, which wasn't an easy lesson for me to live. But there's two people I've worked with a lot the last couple of years. And one of them's Trevor Campster, and you guys know them, him fairly well. And the other one's Sid Osborne from Buena Park. You've at least met his son, Wills, but Sid. Sid runs the conferences and the camps for Buena Park. And I think Sid's a planner, but I'm not sure, because Sid never shares his plan. So we were at Lawson Pines this week, and there's a different speaker for each camp, or for each day. And it's a family camp that has a youth camp component that meets every morning of kids 13 and up, and there's a teaching time then. There's a family camp that meets three times, and, and, and it's kids 12 and under and their parents. And the littler ones have crafts and children meetings, but basically the parents. So there's three meetings there. And then every night at the lake, at re, there's a reflection circle, not unlike Victory Circle up at Verdugo, that we all sit around, and it's really an opportunity to preach the gospel. And the ages range from infant to 80. And Sid always says, you're going to come, you're going to be one of the speakers. And I said, that's great. And I'm a planner. And it takes a lot for me to be able to say, okay, I'm a servant, and servants don't always get to know the plans. So I go to that camp having no clue what meeting I'm going to take. I know I'm going to take a meeting. I don't know if it's going to be family camp. I don't know if it's the youth camp. Or I don't know if it's the, night, the gospel meeting at night. But you sort of have to be prepared just in case because I'm a, I'm a planner, so I go sort of prepared. But I'm in the dark. And I will tell you, that's not my comfort zone to be in the dark. I much prefer to know six weeks in advance so I can have everything planned out and know exactly where I'm now. My message might change and the Lord might lay something else on my heart, but at least I know who I'm addressing and what direction I'm going. And so for the last two years, I've been in the dark. And so this year on, on Sunday night, he said, you're gonna, you're gonna speak at Reflection Circle on Thursday night. And I said, great. And then on Tuesday morning when we had the counselor meeting, he said, then the speakers today are Steve in the morning and Clay at night. <laughs> and so the plan changed. I just didn't know it changed until that day. So you have to adjust your messages. So I went from the closing message of the camp to a message earlier, and I had to adjust it. But you know what? The Lord kept saying to me, are you a servant or aren't you? Because if you're a servant, as the Lord Jesus was, you don't get in on the plan. I mean, one of the things I'm extremely thankful as a Christian is God doesn't treat us as servants. God lets us in on his plan to the very end and into, to a great deal of degree. The other issue, the other story I'll tell you, I was up at Trevor and Leo's and we had a hospital appointment for the surgeon to look at 
Allison's head. And it was misting a little bit like it was out here earlier today. And there was an umbrella in the apartment I was staying in, but, you know, it was just missing, so I didn't worry too much about it. So I went out to the car, and we drive along and we park. Well, by the time we park, it was raining a little harder. And you have to realize, a Southern California boy, I really don't own a raincoat, so I'm just dressed in a coat that's not waterproof in any stretch of the imagination. And we start walking, and it's not just drizzling now. It's coming down pretty good. And we walk a block. And the Lord rescued me because about that time I was getting pretty wet and we had made chocolate chip cookies, Alice and I, the night before and she wanted to give some to the, to the doctor. So Trevor hands me the umbrella that he was walking over. He did bring an umbrella for him and Allison. Handed me the umbrella, put his hood up. I stood under the umbrella with Allison and he ran back to the car to get the cookies. We'd forgotten the car. And so I said to Leo, I go, um, where's the hospital? because I still don't see a hospital. She goes, oh, it's about eight blocks up here. He doesn't like to park there because it costs money to park in the parking structure, so we park down here and take a long walk. And it's like, I have to struggle with my pride because my pride's saying, why didn't someone mention we were going to have a mile walk to the hospital in the rain? I would have brought an umbrella. And the Lord says, are you a servant or are you not? If you're here to serve, serve. Because servants don't always get to pick the condition that they're going to serve under. It was made in the likeness of man and being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself. I want to tell you, it's hard for me to humble myself. And the Lord Jesus humbled himself. And became obedient unto death. You know, it's really hard to be obedient. It's hard to be obedient to your father and mother. It's hard to be obedient to elders. We just naturally rebel against obedience, but that's because of pride. But the Lord Jesus became obedient. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. You know, he resists the proud. He exalts the humble. Well, I got a long ways to go to be one he exalts. Because I struggle with pride on a daily basis. So Paul's telling us that the humility we need is the same humility that the Lord Jesus has. How do we get that? I believe we have to learn of Christ. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, a verse that's behind me, I believe. Yes, it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. One of the things that we're going to learn is that he's, he's meek and lowly of heart. I have to admit, that's a far, far cry from where I'm at. And then Peter would tell us this. For what glory is it when you're buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. 
For even here unto where you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us example that we should follow in his steps. And I want to tell you that if you're going to humble yourself, expect to suffer and to be, expect to be long-suffering. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. And I'm still working on the when you're, when you're threatened. When he suffered or threatened not, not to respond when we suffer. To suffer willingly as a servant of God. If we have the mind of Christ, we must be willing to suffer. It might mean we'll be misunderstood, we'll come under attack, we could be slandered, we'll have our name dragged through the mud and the such like. But the Lord sometimes will use that as a humbling experience, so we will humble ourselves. I'll close with this. If I have a life verse, this well might be it. 1 Timothy 2, 24 and 26. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle all men, unto all men, apt to teach patient, in meekness instructing them that who would oppose themselves, if God preventure, will give them repentance to acknowledge into the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who is taken captive by him at his will. A servant of God must not strive, but be gentle to all men in meekness, instructing those. And I want to tell you that I work on that on a daily basis, and I fall far short of that standard. But my desire is to be a servant of God. And if I'm going to be a servant of God, then that means I must have the mind of Christ in humility I'm not telling you don't stand for the truth. I'm not saying don't continue to teach. It is your responsibility, particularly if you're an elder, to maintain the standard of truth. And that's not what Paul means by that verse. What he does mean is to be patient, to not take offense, to not take things personally, and be consistent in the teaching of the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we'd ask that we would be your servants, that we would be willing to humble ourselves, that we would deal with the issue of pride that blocks our vision, that distorts what we see and causes us so much damage in the assemblies of God's people and among our interpersonal relationships. Oh, Father, teach us to search our hearts. Help us to hold ourselves up to the Lord Jesus and see that perfect standard of righteousness and to see just how far short we fall. Root out the pride that's in our lives so that we might be your humble servants. So that those we come in contact might not see someone who has a proud look, someone who is full of arrogance, but someone who is humble like Christ so that they might see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity we have to set that example of the loving, perfect standard of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.